Zara's like everyone else. She only listens to about half of what I say. Mm. Um, because that's what any smart person would do. Because <laughs> half of what I say is a bunch of garbage. <laughs> oh, Joe's... Um, oh, now we've got the thunderstorm outside. So that, what you just said was very, both very dramatic and so very Joe. Jo- Joe's in a mood this morning, Zara. I, well, I mean, I like that he has this soundtrack at his command. <laughs> Flex, you know. Just call me. Overalls. Just call me Prospero. A- am I am I pronouncing your name correctly, Zar? Y- yes, you are. Okay, and um, and your last name is Saeed. Correct. Awesome. So, um, well, I wanted to get all that right. It's been a great episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been one. Of, it's already been one of those days. I'm in a mood. Y- yeah, I'm in a mood too. Yeah. What mood am I in? Just you're a little. You're a little jumpy. Little jumpy. I don't know if jumpy is the right word, but so I truly am taking after one of my dogs with the storms. That's that's for sure. Harlan does not like storms. Do you have a thunder shirt? I don't have a thunder shirt. Um, you know, I've I've heard a lot of people describe that. Um, and I should get around to getting one, I suppose. But um, he does. He when it's storming out and and I'm there, he sticks close to me, very close, like as in a millimeter away. And every once in a while, I'll give him a little squeeze. And that seems to calm him down. Yeah, my my little dog's thunder shirt worked a little bit like turkey bacon, and uh, the analogy is strained, but uh, it works really well if I'm also holding him the entire time he's wearing it. <laughs> uh, which turkey bacon is delicious so long as you cook it in real bacon grease. Yeah, there you go. It sort of obviates the purpose or the need for the original product. It's not as impressive a substitute, Christian. Just so you know, Zar is the best. She's awesome. The uh, best she one. Was, the best she was one. the chair okay. of the of the AALS IP section uh, when I was, uh, but but a lowly uh, member of that committee, and uh, and she also I I remember being a little bit intimidated by Zara because she was a bit scandalized by a talk I gave once, or so it seemed to me, and and then later I confessed to her years later that I that I felt bad about her being a little scandalized and. I don't know that she remembered it nearly as well as I did, although that's the way of these things. What'd you do to scandalize? I got to hear this. Well, my paper... No, um, no our talk today is going to be about Zara. We're going to talk with Zara about her paper. Yes. But like with all good people, we're going to make this all about us the best yeah, we can, right? So, exactly. Yeah. I like it. I like it. <laughs> so it was a, <laughs> exactly. So it's a paper about the originality standard, and, and I was trying to... At least I think that's the one she was scandalized by. Yeah, yeah. I was hoisting originality. Yeah. And I was sort of trying to argue that... Um, the unconscious copying doctrine and some other problems, as I perceive them to be problems in copyright, suggested to me that there would be a real real benefit to rethinking originality along the lines that uh, that patent law does. It's hard to do. It's hard to figure out how that might work, uh, although I gave it uh, my best shot. Uh, and, uh, and copyright gurus, and, and again, Zara's the best, so copyright gurus uh, really don't like it when you do that. When you say, "Hey, here's a patent law thing we should try over in copyright," most of them I, find I can, that a I can bit see irritating. why, because she's working in a field that actually should exist. <laughs> well, it's, uh, this, it's very interesting to hear to hear your side of it, Joe. Because first of all, first of all, thank you. I, I don't know that I'm the best, but I'm going to take it today. I'm just going to roll with it. <laughs> Good. Uh, so yeah, as the best, um, what I uh, what I thought about that is. Um, First of all, I was coming at it from a very doctrinal perspective. So you got to remember that I took copyright with Jane Ginsburg, who's mm. a wonderful mentor to me, uh, even even if I come out on a more copyright left-leaning side. 
Um, but she cares about most of the same things I care about. So the arts and texts and authors. Uh, and I, I think, I think your paper, Joe, was one of the three or four times I've ever like followed somebody after their talk and tried to kind of either persuade them or argue with them or understand more. Like literally I followed you to lunch. You know, I don't know if you remember that we were in the salad line and I was still like debating originality <laughs> with you. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because on the normative issues around that paper, which I didn't read all the way through it, but I, I pulled it back up um, and I looked at, and actually I love what you've done with the beginning of it and using the shepherd fairy example. Like it's a great, great way to open. Um, but I, I'm, I share pretty much most of the ideas in that paper. I, I share the, the, the values underneath them and I don't, uh, I, I wouldn't push back nearly as much now, but I think in that, in that moment, in my relationship to copyright, I was very much uh, a doctrinalist and sort of, I, I think of it like geometry, you know, like almost like a proof. Well, if you change that, what happens all these other places? Yeah. Uh, but actually, I would just push back and say that I think it's the flip side. When we try to adopt patent things in copyright, we get a lot of flack. I mean, I, I had a whole piece about having a claims sort of like a Markman hearing in mm. copyright in an early version of my last paper, which uh, I got so much pushback at a junior scholars thing, like 2013 or 2014, that I, I dropped it only to learn later that like Pam Samuelson and a couple other people had cited to it <laughs> as being like the one insight that was valuable from the paper. <laughs> um, so maybe it goes both ways. And uh, this is fresh in my mind because I was at a junior senior commenting thing at Michigan State last week. And and it's mm -hmm. wonderful to be uh, in a in a conference where where patent and copyright and trademark are all sort of flowing around the table, and you've got people from all three people who focus on on each of those three things, as well as who are willing to kind of take some stuff over here and jump it up to over there, and and try to get these fields to talk to each other a little bit more. There's not as much of that as would be optimal. I don't, of course, I don't know exactly how to locate what would be optimal, but, but my feeling is that it's, we're not quite there. Of course, a whole nother separate thing to do is to try to, even within a particular area, think through something in a more effective and, and helpful way by looking to other tools and other disciplines to sort of figure out what, how we could think about something more clearly, which the, you know, the, the paper that we're talking about today is kind of the model of that sort of activity. Um, how did you happen on this, on this, um, what would you even call her, a, 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 a literary criticism scholar, or how would she have described herself? A literary theorist, I think. Literary theorist, right. Louise Rosenblatt. Yeah, and let me just uh, say about what you said about the Michigan Roundtable. I've been three times, and I think it's the most consistently rewarding of the workshops I've, I go to and have been to, I think I've now aged out, um, <laughs> but, but it's really, it's exactly as you say. I mean, just, you know, so uh, kudos to those guys for continuing to run a really great uh, workshop. So the Rosenblatt story, it's interesting. I mean, it connects to uh, graduate school. I went to graduate school to study literature, uh, never thinking I was going to go to law school. And that's kind of a different story, but you know, I knew some reader response theory stuff. I mean, we were trained in a range of different approaches, but I never delved too deep. And in fact, because I was in comp lit uh, and had a lot of German taught professors, the stuff I got about reception theory was more 
Yaus and more, you know, who's a, who's a famous reception theory guy and kind of more historically inflected and less phenomenological. Mm. Uh, it's one of the people who was prominent in this field. Um, Suzanne Suleiman uh, was in my graduate department and she had a more psychoanalytic approach or, you know, was interested in those kinds of things. So I never discovered Rosenblatt um, independently or, or rather as a, a part of graduate school. But as I was thinking about the reader and returning to some of the texts that I was familiar with and some of the anthologies, you know, she was one of the people that I saw kind of at the periphery. So then when I went to read her work, it was, uh, I had a real crush. I really kind of fell in love with her. Um, you know, I read the first, uh, the first book, um, the 1938 uh, book on, on reader response theory. And then it was 40 years until she published her second. And so it's interesting because you read the second one and it's just a more artistic articulate version of the first and it expands on it. It adds effort versus aesthetic. Um, but I was so curious about who she was. And I was so interested in the fact that even anthologies being published in the early 80s. So, you know, her first work had been, you know, in print for 50 some years and her second and really major one had been published in 78. Even those anthologies a few years after that were taking no note of her or in one case added a footnote in the intro being like, ah, by the time I discovered her work, it was just a little too late to include her. And so that made me curious about her. And I read a tiny bit about her and a couple of essays about her. And if you go to her Wikipedia page, you'll see this. It's so neat. She was roommates in college with Margaret Mead hmm. and then went and hung out in Paris with Gertrude Stein and those guys. Wow. And so she she actually led this really interesting life of an intellectual who hung out with people who, you know, got the fame that maybe they deserved or maybe they didn't in some cases. But she was kind of sidelined. And so I was really interested in her as a figure. And, you know, I think where I came out on it is that people who work on pedagogy, which she did, tend not to be as revered in the certainly in the literary academy and people who are practical or pragmatic. Um, and interested in experience, just especially in the literary world, tend to be uh, on the periphery. Uh, mm. But for those very reasons, it seemed to me that her work, which had been done, uh, which represented several decades worth of working with students and studying how they read things, that that, that actually might be really helpful for copyright, which wasn't interested in or wouldn't, uh, not that it wouldn't be interested in, but it wouldn't necessarily benefit from a highly theoretical, psychoanalytically infused theory of the ego in reading, right? Like that, how do we get to, you know, the judge and the jury and what we do from there? Um, yeah. So it's kind of a long answer, but I really did have this experience of delight of discovering her work and of thinking about why she was overlooked pretty consistently. So much there. Wow. Before we hear whether you were like how much you were aware that you were having a response to her writing about reader response, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and how how much of that kind of like meta cognition is going on in 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 literary criticism generally. Uh, we should back up and just talk about how this is relevant. The upshot is here is we're trying to think about copyright law. And yeah. We're trying to think about um, when uh, two works are similar, like what does it mean to copy another work, right? And, right? and in order to know whether one work is copied, unless it's a flat-out transcription, and even then you might have some interesting ideas about that, you have to have a, a theory of meaning, like what does this mean, what does that mean, and then what kind of meanings are we interested in for copyright purposes so that we can say that one is a copy of another within that meaning of, of copy. And, and so you start with this really 
I think this, uh, the example of the Blurred Lines case, and it was litigated just on a composition ground, like the one composition is substantially similar to another composition, but there were other elements that the jury probably considered to reach its verdict, which I guess is ultimately reversed. But where, where do we want to go with all this? I think you've gotten us 99% of the of the way to kicking it off. It, it's interesting, and, and Zara, let me ask you what your impression is as someone who's, who's really st- so steeped in this literature. I got the impression as we were talking to Joe Fishman about his paper, Music mm-hmm. as a Matter of Law, and, and that's what inspired me to, to make sure that we talk to you sooner rather than later. I get the impression, as someone who's not as steeped in the copyright literature, that, and I get this, um, funny that you mentioned Rosenblatt as a teacher, because I get this impression from being a teacher mm-hmm. of the IP survey class on, a, on, a, on basically an annual basis. And the part of the course where I always feel the most uneasy, where I feel like I can hear the ice cracking under my feet <laughs> um, and I'm about to plunge into cold water, um, is when we do substantial similarity in copyright. Mm-hmm. And what's so strange to me about it, it's really the core question of liability. Yep. And at virtually every serious copyright person says it's in crisis, right? The right. substantial similarity analysis is sort of so chaotic and hapless and weird and the circuits are all over the place, which is something the circuit judges themselves say. Right. What, do you, what is one to make of all that? Is, is, are you all just drama queens or is there something, is there a, or is it as bad as I feel when I'm teaching it? Or, I mean, what's going on? Right. I mean, I don't know that those are disjunctive. I mean, <laughs> and also all of these things about copyright law are true. No, right. It's Mark Lindley calls the process um, of infringement, the analysis, uh, exactly backwards. Um, and I think that that's, that's right in a lot of ways. And you're, you're right. It's been 40 or 50 years worth of people saying it's broken uh, and nobody really fixing it. I mean, I think one plausible answer is Sean Balganesh's um, piece on the normativity of copying and that that's where, we, uh, that's where we work it out. You know, when I teach advanced copyright, I spend some time with students looking at how and why it feels messy and inconsistent and how some of that has to do with uh, expert testimony and what evidence we consider and uh, modes of interpreting or looking at works. In the survey, I really do what I guess you probably do um, as well, uh, which is worry about cracking the ice uh, and sort of point to some of the, the lack of cohesion. But what I emphasize there is maybe what you would consider the conventional story about um, the low threshold of uh, of copyrightability, sort of the low threshold um, required to uh, gain any kind of protection. And I say, look, it's inefficient, or at least that's the that's the conclusion I draw, uh, is that it's inefficient to focus too much on what is protected in copyright on the front end. So we do it on the back end, unlike with patent, where at least in theory, we do it on the front end through claiming, and then we also have a Markman hearing. Uh, and so the system by design targets certainty up front. Whether it works is a different question, right? Whereas with copyright, I think the idea is we'll figure it out later because most claims aren't going to be litigated and we want to encourage people to continue to make incremental additions and variations and uh, we want more, you know, vampire romance novels or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what that results in is sort of a quagmire in the infringement analysis where everything's getting worked out there as opposed to at earlier points like uh, originality or even authorship um, or what counts as a work. Um, and so I think it may be that we have relied on there being either fewer 
cases litigated or fewer dollars at stake and that it was more efficient on some level to have this uncertainty worked out in infringement. But I'm not sure we're there anymore, if, if we ever were, if that story is, is uh, consistent or accurate. But, but that's what I try to do is, is contrast it with patent and say, we let you get in more easily and then we make you duke it out at infringement. And that's where the difficulty tends to happen. Can we get some nuts and bolts just for the like listeners who haven't been through this before and they're hearing a lot of things for the first time? Sure. The Laura Heyman piece uh, reacting to yours that um, is in the Iowa Law Review online, which um, which we read and is also very interesting. She uses this example of um, the MGM versus basically the James Bond commercial case. Right. Maybe could we walk through that and just like just see why this is a hard question? I don't think that's a nuts and bolts question at all in the sense that it involves the copyrightability of characters apart from any particular scene or dialogue. That's mm-hmm. actually, to me, an exceptionally theoretically complicated Well, question. at least we could just say, like, you know, let's lay out what the facts are and then think about, like, okay, so what, what would you, what are some choices about how to think about this? So it's a commercial uh, for, um, I think it's a, is it a Honda car or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it's Honda. So, so the nuts and bolts would, in theory, be, that if um, let, let's let's take let's take it away from that case for a second and say it's a standard sort of and we'll we'll, we'll fold in the complexity of um, the characters we'll, we'll sweep under the rug the complexity of characters for a moment uh, and say somebody comes along and um, creates uh, not an identical copy which would be an easier question right if you were just um, unlawfully uh, pirating, let's say, uh, an actual James Bond movie and then distributing it yourself. It's a different question, right? When when we're talking about substantial similarity, it's because we don't have identity between the two works. So what we're looking at is somebody comes along, let's say it's Melissa McCarthy in Spy, uh, and you uh, see that she's a spy kind of character, and there are certain sorts of plot contrivances which are similar. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's kind of... Right. It's brilliant. It's kind of rewriting and she subverts a lot of conventions and every one of her disguises, for instance, makes her look sort of clownish or not cool, you know, per uh, contrast with the James Bond vehicles, which are all about making him look masculine and potent and all these different kinds of things. And um, that's a maybe easier case. But now imagine if you had in between those a character who really was quite Bond-like, suave and uh, always, you know, succeeding sexually as well as professionally and had a martini in a particular way. Uh, maybe it's not steak sh- shaken and stirred, but um, or, you know, maybe it's not exactly the same or that it's not an Aston Martin and so forth. But you look at those two and Assuming that Ian Fleming or whoever owns the rights to the Bond uh, property, you would say, was the work copied? That's the first step in the house. And then the second would be, uh, was the copying improper? And the circuits all have some variation of that two-step test. They're a little bit different, but that's the basic uh, structure. Um, Laura's paper was uh, great, really a a great read. But it's interesting, I actually like her formulation better. I don't think it's descriptively 100% how I would describe it. But she wrote, is the author using another's work? And then is the work protected? Um, Or is that use rather protected? And that's, that's in some ways, a much better way to put it. But in general, it's the first question, was there copying? And then was the, the copying qualitatively the kind that we find infringing, right? Did it use things that are protected or was it in some way objectionable? So that's the nuts and bolts. Um, Even if the person who writes either of those two other movies denies that they copied from the Bond movie, 
I mean, there's sort of two Bond movies, there's sort of two layers. One, you could say, well, look, even if you deny it, you certainly had access to it because they were publicly displayed for years, right? So they're certainly publicly available materials. And and if we think there's enough similarity in your work um, that put the two together and that circumstantial evidence that you copied, secondarily, um, copyright uh, says there can be unconscious but liability triggering copying. So even if you're denying it and you are sincere in your denial, we can find that you were copying from that earlier work. So that's just step one before we get to the question, okay, given that we think you copied in fact, Mm -hmm. do we think the copying that you did is the sort of copying that should result in liability because it's an improper appropriation? It's interesting you guys put it that way because I, you know, in my naive mind, I might have put it the other way because I think of the level of generality problem, right? That the second person ever to make a spy movie likely was inspired by the first person ever to make a spy movie. And, and they copied, right, that spy movie thing. But, but you wouldn't think that that was like, that's just, just not something you can put a fence around, right? We're not going to police the fence around right. spy movie writ large. Right. Right? And so you've just, like this and you've just of, gotten to the learned hands intuition in this famous case called Nichols about, you know, you, the level of generality right. issue is going to bedevil this area for sure. And, and your intuition is there are some broad themes that we cannot allow any one individual right. to, to uh, monopolize. So we need to f- focus on saying copyrights about the more um, detailed expression and less about the theme. Yeah, just see, I saw that, and, 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 and you know, I've seen that before. It, what do they call it? It's a French word. It's a saint affair. Is that what it is? Saint affair, yeah. Yeah. And, and just, it almost seems like a cheat. Like, like that's a way of describing a category of things which are not copyrightable. Instead of just well, but, acknowledging yeah, but that you, you've mentioned two different things, right? Yeah. So the, 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 the levels of generality issue is, I think, a different issue from the issue of are, within any given genre, are there conventional sort of tropes or, or common things that you're going to see in virtually every example of that genre, right? That is a different problem from the problem of levels of generality. It's, right. Things that are necessary to the... Uh, to the, the scene or to the, the genre. I mean, that that's in a way, Joe, one of the things I find hardest about hoisting originality is, you know, if you claim something at a particular moment, maybe you're not allowing for the idea that something no longer is original after the fourth iteration by somebody else of that genre, right? And like, that's the problem with memes or virality or however you want to put it, you know, basically success. In the trademark world, we think of it as, as genericide or something like that. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, when you have like the Bollywood Pride and Prejudice or, you know, um, uh, zombie Pride and Prejudice, right? The first uh, undead Jane Austen works, you know, are going to uh, combine certain things like uh, parlor games with uh, brain eating, right? And then the next one, same thing. You're going to have some of the same uh, elements in the mashup and uh, what might be original under the first um, under the first analysis you know, the third or fourth uh, isn't. And, and that's right. appropriate. But what what becomes protected in the fourth uh, affects also what can be done to the first, right? So the, the first comer thinks they have a strong copyright because when they came on the scene, it was uh, a particular way and it was uh, novel, really, if you want to use that idea. Right. Uh, but then uh, by the, the fourth or the fifth uh, iteration of it, people are freer and freer to copy even the ideas in the first, of course, you can always copy ideas, but I mean, to the extent that the ideas 
in the fifth or the sixth look a lot like even in their expression, the first, right? The copyright protection gets thinner. And that's something that students ask about all the time. They always want to talk about genre. And there isn't a really great answer to that other than, yeah, it thins over time. Yeah. And it, it, it is, a you know, not uh, we shouldn't get derailed into my paper because, you know, yours is both more more current and more interesting. But the 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 I mean, in a way, the one way to express the difference between pat, uh, one of the differences between patent law and copyright law is that the standard within patent law for is, is something worthy of protection at the most basic level is much more dependent on and and situated within time. Right. And and copyright law originality is more timeless. Right. It's less important when you did it relative to the other things that were done. What matters is you did you do it by yourself instead of simply appropriating from somebody else. It's sort of in time in a, in a dyadic sense, but probably not in, in more than that. So, you know, I, my, my approach definitely would have taken copyright law originality and embedded it much more thickly in time. So you're right, later coming works would be, would have a different, well, they wouldn't be copyrightable themselves because they wouldn't be original um, in the necessary fashion. Right. Or what would be original would be quite a bit less in any event, right? Yes, and the and so it's consistent with my <laughs> the general body of you know Christian knocks me for for everything. IP law and stuff. Yeah, everything <laughs> true, but for IP law stuff and my being, I guess I'm more gulled by the stories that support IP law. But but within the IP discipline, I would say I, I'm probably one of the least protection oriented people there are. I mean, I, I, you know. If there were many, many, many orders of magnitude, fewer protectable patents and copyrights, I would be much, much happier. I think I agree with much of that, maybe more than my work sometimes shows, because I'm trying to be cautious to some extent. But uh, I I know that when I was working on characters uh, and I would talk to literature professors, um, I was was a fellow still at UVA in that phase of my life and uh, kind of closely connected to the English department there. And I would sometimes have a senior scholar just stop in their tracks as we were like walking to lunch and say, you mean you can get a copyright in a character? <laughs> it's just, you know, so at odds with what the practitioners, the writers and the scholars in that space thought should be the case. Uh, so, I, you know, I share a lot of that. And I, I, I like to try to think of ways that get us there, you know, I guess within the box uh, before we decide to you know, trash the box. Yeah. Not saying you're trashing the box. It just, you know. So Christian, when, when we do those basics of figuring out sort of what does a basic infringement inquiry look like, right? And some of the things we might look at and the, and the levels of generality that, that Czar sketched with different ways of thinking about other spy movies, right? Yeah. Um, w- so what do you want to do next? Oh, we, we did that for you. Well, so where do you want to go next? I, I, I kind of wanted to go through the Bond case and figure out why it's hard. And I mean, I'm having a lot of thoughts right now and, and I'm kind of pushing back. I, I, it almost feels like this Euclidean thing that you started with, this proof idea that you started with, Tsar, mm-hmm. um, that like we're, we've convinced ourselves that there are going to be these um, protectable protectable units, like these these acres of land that we're going to be able to fence off. And and the only job now is to figure out you know how to do it. And, and there has to be a way to do it. And so we need to categorize things into protectable units and then non-protectable units and there's got to be a system of doing that but if we if we engineer the system in this way 
um, then has effects on the other part of the system. And, and so it's just a matter of like being coherent and getting it to be coherent. And so I have some doubts about the ultimate possibility of coherency there mm-hmm. um, and, and about the, the strength of this distinction between levels of generality and seen affair, as, as Joe puts it. I'm, I'm not convinced that there is that, that distinction. But, um, but also, it, you know, is it, is it possible even to do this task without an eye on the ultimate normative aim? Right. That that ultimately we're concerned that there's a kind of there's a kind of free writing that we don't like and we, and we don't like it maybe for instrumental reasons. Other people have moral reasons. I don't. But but instrumental reasons. And so we're trying to design the system of things that you can put a fence around with an eye on the, stopping the, the kind of bad free writing for instrumental reasons. And so, uh, so that's a lot of stuff. And, and, I, and, and I want to figure out how that that interacts with the the idea of reader responsiveness. And, and if I'm an author and I'm sitting down to write a new work and I'm deciding, am I going to go through with this or am I going to stop and just turn on the TV and consume leisure instead? I'm motivated by all kinds of things. I mean, maybe money, maybe control, maybe notoriety, maybe something else. Part of what I'm going to want to know, I guess, and that is when I do this thing, am I going to have the kind of reward that I want from this? And I, I don't know where I'm going with this, Joe. I, I'm, I'm all mixed up. So let me put it to Zara this way as a question. If a person read your paper and said, okay, uh, you're trying to teach me about a theory of reading and a theory of the reader, and, and I'm worried that what the real issue here is uh, that I don't yet have a theory of harm. I don't know what the harm is yet. And until I know what the harm is that I'm trying to prevent, I can't really understand what kind of reader I should be looking for. I think that there's two kinds of harm, actually. Um... And the first is the harm to the second author, and then the second is the harm to the first author. And that, that'll tell you something, that I, that I just ordered it in that way. Um, so, Christian, you use this fence metaphor. And for a number of reasons, I think the fence metaphor is more apt for patent than copyright. You know, I don't think that people are on notice in the same way that they're necessarily infringing something until after they try to get, you know, an agent and then they discover. I mean, that that happens quite quite often, you know, then they discover they're a little too close to someone else's work or that, um, you know, their music, you know, someone someone in the band says, hey, that's actually something that you don't even realize you copied. Um, so the, but the fence metaphor, the reason it seems apt for patent and less so for copyright is that, you know, if you approach a, a property and you see a fence and you're on notice that what's within it is protected, unless you know of some easement or something like that, you'll assume that you're trespassing when you um, when you walk on it, right? Unless you know of an easement or you believe that an easement is necessary or for some other reason you have uh, permission, perhaps there's a mistake, right? With copyright, it's imagine there's a boundary. There may or may not be a fence, but as you proceed onto the property, you're told, Anything that is, uh, you know, naturally occurring, it's wood, it's water, maybe necessary for your survival, you can use. But anything that looks like someone has used those things, like an ice sculpture has been made or uh, a a wooden hut has been made, those things, you know, you, you can't use those. But, you know, the things that those things were made out of, you can. So in a way, it's actually much harder to know uh, how to avoid trespassing. Uh, and that's part of what is at stake in the infringement analysis, right? So that's like thinking about the second author. Even if you want to do the right thing, it can be hard to know, you know, first of all, how we define the right thing. But right, even if you you want to avoid a copyright infringement lawsuit, define it that way, it can be hard to do. And then the second theory of, of harm uh, I would advance is, in fact, uh, the one that copyright protection is meant to stem or uh, prevent, which is uh, the 
deprivation of a limited monopoly to an author who has uh, complied in other respects. In other words, is within the subject matter uh, of copyright and so forth, and their uh, reward is diminished. I don't really subscribe to the incentive theory too much. I mean, I suppose I have to, because I'm a, in a utilitarian world, but <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that's why most people create. I mean, uh, you know, maybe it's why some people license or it's why some people invest, but I don't think it's why they create. So in both of those cases, if we care about either protecting the original author or providing greater clarity, predictability, and fairness to the second author, we want to make sure that infringement is a little bit more orderly, uh, a little bit better tailored, and that the scope of the protection of the copyright is better policed. A lot of people are working on scope these days and trying to think about how to improve that. And uh, this paper is a part of that. It sort of lays the groundwork for thinking more about the jury's role. So, so if I'm thinking about making a, making a commercial where, where I want to use, so I'm, I'm like, I'm going into this space and I'm seeing within this space, uh, and maybe it's the James Bond space, uh, the, you know, the, the copyright owned space. And, and I'm seeing stuff at different levels of generality and, and, and stuff, which is maybe, maybe wood, maybe a sculpture. And I'm trying to figure out what, what the difference is, but I see like, there's the cool spy genre that now seems more particular, but, but also infused in the culture because of Austin Powers and right. and a number of different spinoffs and spoofs and gags on like Saturday Night Live and other things like just the idea of the cool spy who always manages to land on his feet no matter how precarious the situation and do so like with a plum right that 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 um, and is always well dressed and 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 gets the girl and so there's all this machismo built into it and, and maybe it's like a even even today like per, perceived as kind of a last uh, a last bastion for the safe expression of machismo like that's bound up in it too right the kind of sexual politics and right. and, and and so like I want to tap into that which I think of as yeah you kind of you pioneered some of these movies but like the ideas now has escaped you it's broader and and so when right. i and so i make a i make a commercial featuring you know a well dressed uh british spy with a british accent with a traditionally attractive girl in a fast car escaping through hijinks and everything else and 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 it calls all that to mind you know the, the issue is like have i borrowed have i taken too much like did i take the sculpture did i take a bunch of of wood and 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 which is now you know because there are a bunch of sculptures in that room made by other people now right and and some All of them right. are very similar and so it gets to be right. really hard and so so maybe in just in thinking through like you know what's hard about that and then also how my kind of aesthetic and then um what, what's the other word effort um efferent uh, efferent yeah my, my 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 aesthetic and efferent reactions as a reader should inform us like forget the jury for just a second and just think of me as an individual perceiving this right yeah. and then and then building on like whether my aesthetic reaction should is that a useful bit of information the, the aesthetic reaction that a person in general would have is that useful information in telling us about whether this is the kind of of intrusion we want to do something about or, or the kind of uh, of taking we want to do something about or this this effort one that i've gone through and if we actually count things up you know so all right so i'm kind of putting it all out there well, you're looking at me puzzled joe i hope well, this i is... don't know what we're supposed to do yet but what are we supposed to do well what i'm curious about is like first of all is this a hard case i think it is why is it a hard case and then what does the read responsive reader theory right this theory of literary um criticism how does that help us think about this hard case so um 
couple couple things. Um, I haven't read this case in a little while, but I, as I recall, that there uh, there were some bad facts here, where uh, an earlier version of communications and maybe even a labeling of the ad internally used the word James Bond and then dropped it off, and so it got harder for them to admit that or to to deny the that they had actually intentionally copied this character. Uh, so it may be a case where, um, you know, bad facts make the law there a little bit. Um, second, and probably much more importantly, um, character copyright, is, as Joe was indicating before, is, is pretty fraught. And it, this is not to say I'm going to punt because it's too hard to answer. Not so. Uh, but there are a couple things that have to be reckoned with. First is that most cases where a character is litigated, there are both copyright and trademark claims. I, I'm not sure that I've seen a successful character copyright case without a trademark case, uh, trademark right in it. I can think of at least one case where somebody failed in their attempt to protect a copyright uh, where there was not. And this is, I'm talking about in the contemporary era. There Mm -hmm. just aren't that many. And that's because often those two are uh, available and particularly in this uh, era of sequels and merchandising, that's where the money is. This is super important. I mean, I, I think actually, the if you'd asked me, why is this uh, Honda copyright case hard? My answer, a bit flip, would have been, well, the reason it's a hard copyright case is it's not, it's not a copyright case at all. Right. Uh, it's a trademark case, right. which the, the lawyers have gulled some judge into misidentifying as a copyright case. The, the issue there is about evocation and you could try to package it as a sponsorship, likelihood of confusion as to sponsorship claim uh, under the Lanham Act. But it's not a copyright case at all because there's not, they're not using expression in any mm. meaningful way. Getting back to the level of generality problem, yeah. they've used what's become a cultural trope. I see a real danger there, but, but keep going. I don't want to... Well, but that, I'm, not saying you should, I'm not saying they should win as a trademark claim. Right. I'm saying that's the way to have a conversation about it that is, that, that's at least coherent and predictable. Something that's really of note to me every time I look at the copyright cases is how thoroughly trademark languaged they are. In other words, uh, starting from Nichols, the standard uh, in the Second Circuit and really pretty influentially throughout other circuits, other than maybe the Ninth, although recently also in the Ninth, is whether a character uh, is uh, distinctively delineated, right? And that courts talk about distinctiveness, which is distinct from, sorry, uh, originality, right? And they talk about consistency in the characters, which go back to my colleagues uh, in English, they don't think about whether characters are, are consistent across novels, right? I mean, it's a very trademark way of thinking about characters. It's sort of like, um, who's that um, that uh, uh, novelist who has the character, Stephanie, uh, the detective who likes the donuts. She's exactly the same in every story. But anyway, you know what it's like, the airport novels, right? Yeah. With um, serialized characters. And the character is, in fact, to quote another case from the Ninth Circuit, is really the... Um, tells the story, oh my gosh, that constitutes the story being told. It took me a second to pull up the language in my head. But, um, and that's a trademark-like idea, right? Totally. If we care about consistency, if we care about the same. So it, it, that, in a way, skews the, the doctrine. This is like character as a fast food restaurant. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. Or it's exactly. the LV mark on every bag. Like and, you know and what you're trunk getting. And wallet and keychain. It's the same LV little symbol, but it's on all these different products, right? It's the same character, but it's in all these different novels that, that are, you know, sort of hang together. And it's why you might buy that book in the airport or why you might go to the James right. Bond movie without even reading any reviews. Because you know what it's going to be. Because you know what you're going to get. It's the same exactly. reason you go to McDonald's in a strange town. Or why, for that matter, you care about the various different Henry ads which Falstaff stars in, 
because you love the Falstaff character and you think he's funny and you see him in a few different plays. And actually, that's where Sense Affair comes from, is we don't want to protect characters who are stock, who are, you know, broad in that way. So, so we've got to think of it as a sort of, you know, back channel to trademark protection. The last thing about character protection that I think makes it hard to hard to analyze in a way is that it only arises as independent protection when characters are removed from their original setting and scenario. Because think about it, if you have James Bond in a standard spy story and a subsequent author creates a very similar story, plot, setting, and character, you don't actually need independent protection because all you're looking at are the plot, the story, I mean, plot in general is not protected, but all of the various features, you can basically do substantial similarity without considering character copyrightability uh, independently. So it's really scenarios where you take James Bond out, you pluck him out of his original universe, you put him in a new setting, right? And you basically create a derivative work um, or a, a possibly a derivative work and you put him in, you know, a, a sorority or, uh, you know, a totally different setting, Coachella, right? Whatever it is, <laughs> <laughs> where, where I'm going today. But yeah, no. uh, and, and now the yeah. only thing between the two works that's similar is the character. And you could simply analyze this as a question of substantial similarity where that's the only thing. But courts often treat that as a question of independent co character copyrightability. And there are debates among the people in our field as to whether there is even such a thing. Uh, and I know, for instance, Jessica Lippman believes there really isn't, or I've, I've had conversations with her to that effect. Um, but notwithstanding that, courts will often say that characters can be independently copyrightable. And in some cases, they'll refer to that as only if they're visually protected as well, like cartoon characters are more protectable. But I have definitely seen language in which courts say that uh, characters can be independently copyrighted. Um, but that's a threshold question, you know, that suggests that it's one of the many elements of complexity when you're talking about characters. That's why, in some ways, you know, I, if we'd known we were going to talk about this James Bond case, I would have yeah. gone back and, and read it closely. But yeah. I, I think of it as a one-off. I don't think of it as like the, the meat and potatoes copyright infringement cases um, that really present the, the greatest uh, and regular ongoing difficulty. Well, to zero in on your work a little bit more, I, I think these three examples that you give, you, you do this, you open the paper with this thought experiment, you know, look, consider these three works and, uh, and one of them is a song, one is a, a, a piece of visual art and the other is a poem. And, and, and you ask us to consider them and well, you tell us a little bit about them and then you ask us to, to, to just look at them and, and, or to read them and to think about them or listen to them. And I, and I did that. And then, me too. and then you ask us to go back and, and do particular things. And I, and, and so you kind of are showing kind of different ways that we consume uh, as and even to use the word consume is is kind of pregnant with implication. But I'll let me just take this this Jacob Lawrence uh, picture that you have. And we're going to link it in the show notes so that maybe the listeners can go and and take a look oh. at it too. Um, so I'm it, it, you know it's a it's a picture it's a self portrait of the artist in as you say like an imaginary version of his studio in Seattle and because Harlem is out the window right, right. Um, and so it's like a it's a melange of different the the studio of his mind maybe and and it has these kind of cubist style lines in it and it's bright with color. There's a lot going on there. Now, obviously the more I talk about it, the more I'm kind of relaying kind of what hits me when, when I look at it. Um, so, so if a lot of what we're doing with, with copyright is we're asking juries to make interpretations of works and asking, and asking themselves whether there is substantial similarity in some way, 
so that the idea of a person making an interpretation of something and comparing something else is at the heart of what we're going to be doing no matter what we do. When we look at this Jacob Lawrence um, painting, do you just want to tell us like what what does it mean to interpret that? Like what does it mean to fill it out with meaning according to the theory? Like you're taking it further than than many uh, people in the field have using this uh, using the reader responsiveness idea. Do you want to just tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. Let me start with like a sentence or two about text and then come to this painting. It strikes me that when you're reading a poem, going from line two to line three, sometimes because there's an enjambment will just flow. And sometimes you stop and realize that as you're starting the third sentence, you've had to create a kind of meaning just to make the two sentences flow. Mm, right. Yeah. And that, that's, a, I give an example of that in, um, in the, the paper. I think it's, not as clear when you're looking at a visual work what for example what you know where you start in a frame so the classic view is i think you start in the upper right hand corner or something is where the default goes in western culture who knows right people have different points of access into works like this right but what you can't do for instance is think that this is a painting about uh, because he's an African-American from a particular uh, moment in time, that it's about jazz or something. You can't just impose any meaning you want on it. At the same time, you're going to look at it, and the more you look at it, you're going to be making some meaning of it, right? And and the meaning isn't right or wrong. It's simply the longer you look at it, the more stuff you see, right? And if you've ever been to a museum and sort of looked at a painting that you've seen before, uh, but in a smaller version, you've had this experience of, wow, when you see it, up front, and when you see it, you know, life size, certain things jump out in different ways. Um, so I think the process is you look at a painting like this, and you try to figure out, um, you know, whatever your points of access are. So for me, I'm interested in what's out the window. You know, I spent a year of my dissertation writing just about windows and works of art. So I'm kind of obsessed with windows. And I, <laughs> you know, that's a point of access for me. I'm yeah. curious when I look at it, why, why do artists use a ruler? and create perfectly straight lines in some places, but not in others. What's the effect of that? I'm interested in the colors. I'm interested in an artist who's worked in Seattle creating a window that has particular shades of light reflected, right? So none of that is right or wrong. Um, But my feeling is that if we can understand that we are all going to have an aesthetic experience, something where we just have to like getting from line two to line three with any work, right? Whether it's visual or um, an audio work, audiovisual work, or just um, a a painting, Um, we've got to get from point A to point B to just make any sense of what we're seeing. And my feeling is that because courts have often embraced a holistic or gestalt view of substantial similarity analysis, that this would be a way of pushing back against that. And All I'll say about that is that a total concept and feel or gestalt or holistic, I'm using those words interchangeably, that is an approach to a work that reflects an interpretive commitment to looking at things a particular way, forefronting intuition and putting on the back burner anything like dissection or analysis or filtering. And it's troubling because, and this is something I pointed out in an earlier piece I published, it's actually an interpretive framework that courts have increasingly treated as so natural as to become an element of the work. And let me just, that's a complex idea. So let me just Hmm. clarify what I mean. When courts are looking at two works, they'll say, well, what, you know, is the plot similar? 
Uh, is the setting similar? Is the you know the characters similar? Is the title similar? All that, a whole bunch of things to sort of add up to uh, infringement. And they'll often say, is the total concept and feel similar? And that you see that over and over and over again. And that's actually folding in an interpretive approach and treating it as though it's actually inside the work. So what I'm trying to do is say, wait a second, if we actually take that out and say that's a framework, what we're going to do is just look at the things that are in the work and then try to cabin the amounts of sort of intuition and call them that, call them an aesthetic, intuitive, experiential aspect. We can treat that as a kind of evidence we're going to weigh a particular way. So judges can say, well, which parts of this Jacob Lawrence painting, you know, do you find um, copied, right? Like, are you just saying the use of straight lines? Are you saying that the use of red or the idea of the author or the, the artist in his studio, you know, which parts of it? And when you surface what you've actually dubbed similar, right, you can trace that to um, whether it's protectable or not. And right now, with a black box, we can't do that, right? Juries just go, nah, total concept, it feels pretty similar or not similar. And that's that's the end of it. Now, there is supposed to be this sort of screening step where, which my sense is gets pushed into the copying and fact question, where we do more of that dissecting and looking carefully at this thing or that thing and say, ah, th this is what indicates that there was copying rather than independent creation. Because all these similarities that are here, including some that it might take a bit of expertise to pick up on, what explains the presence of these similarities is that you are copying. It, it just strains belief that you would have this many similarities by accident. And you think that takes expert opinion to kind of, I mean, so, so an individual well, could Well, at least courts are open to the notion that yeah. an expert could help them understand subtle ways in that would, subtle things that would suggest there had been copying rather than independent Would creation. someone in this expressive field, like what are the chances that they would stumble upon this by accident? And then you add up all of those things, you multiply those probabilities, and you the, have the probability that it was all done by accident, something like that. Yeah, the total concatenation of, of all of these things together. Right. Right. Um, and and this, is, this is the efferent recept reader reception, right, that you are going to go in there and look for particular things. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's the efferent analysis. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen as often as one would, would hope, right? Uh, Rebecca Tushnet's great piece in the Harvard Law Review a few years back said that in visual works of art, um, often you'll see courts, um, you know, judges treating works as either opaque or transparent. So sometimes they treat them as opaque. They look at them. They see that they're, um, you know, too, too confusing or difficult and they sort of punt on them. Or they'll treat them as transparent. And that, I see that quite a bit. And they'll say, well, I mean, everybody sees the same thing here, right? That's obvious. And so they don't actually <laughs> necessarily do all the filtering that they should, even at the stage where they're supposed to. Um, or the, the flip side of this, and you see this a lot on motions for summary judgment, typically when they're being, um, is when a, a judge is uh, granting a motion to dismiss, where there will be a long list of purported similarities and then no filtering whatsoever, right? So it's either all, it's sort of an on-off switch. So the, the actual efferent work happens in stage one um, of, of copying and either there is or there isn't copying. But regardless of that, um, you know, let's say there is copying, then in stage two uh, or phase two, the court just sort of concludes, right? Well, that's not enough, actually. We still need to figure out, even if there was copying, was it the kind of copying we care about? And, you know, other work has, has shown that juries... Um, are cognitively biased once they know that something has been copied. There's a real uh, 
I think jurors have a really hard time suppressing the moral norm around copying and finding that something was not improperly copied, right? And that's that's research I'm relying on that others have done. Um, but it makes a lot of sense to me. I think there are a lot of hidden moral norms in copyright that do a lot of work, really the bedevil copyright uh, analysis. You know, in a way, it's it shows the the aesthetic um, and separating it from the efferent with Rosenblatt's sort of conceptual apparatus, you know, separating those two things and, and the point you just made about the order in which you ask the question may have a lot to do with the answer you get really suggests to me that, and here's why I think that having a theory of harm is really important <laughs> and why, and, and, the way that I, I might look at the paper and, and say, well, gosh, it makes me want to think m- harder about the harm and how that sort of influences the process here, is to say, I mean, in a way, like, look, the first thing you do is you go to the fact finder and you've got the copyrighted work and you've got the accused work. And you just say to the fact finder in sort of an innocent way, like, does this accused thing, is it making the same aesthetic appeal to you as the first one, as the copyrighted one? And if the answer to that is no, the case is over. Mm-hmm. And if the answer is yes, they say, okay, now at least there's a possibility that there's been the, the harm, the injury that the copyright system cares about. And, and then we'd have to ha- talk more about where it's coming from. What's the causation analysis? Can I ask you right? just about the first, just to expand a little bit, how would you ask an average juror... How would you put what you what you just said in terms that would would cause an average juror to perform the task that you want them to? Uh, attack? I, I might say instead of aesthetic appeal, I might say commercial appeal, or I might say, does the accused thing affect your taste the way the first one does? Like something about and and it is a consumption story, be, and I think that's you, this is where you kind of have to make a choice about what you think the theory of harm is because I, I take the Campbell. I mean, in a, it, to to my mind, the the the. Campbell against Acuff Rose, which we think of as a fair use case and a parody case, in a way, it's the discussion of the fourth fair use factor, which is the you know harm on the market, right? That discussion of factor four, if you take it for all that it's worth, is sort of like the most important stuff in modern copyright, right? Because basically it says, look, here's the theory of harm in copyright, full stop. It's substitution effects, period, right? And so you can use that and say, is this thing a substitute? Here's another way you could phrase the question, Christian. You could say to the juror, do you think this work is a, is, is a, sub, is a good substitute for that one? And if the answer is no, the case is over. So uh, I, I like this, by the way. But uh, <laughs> one of the things I wonder about is, um, does the need for a jury go away then in a case where uh, aesthetic reading is maybe not necessary because the work is aimed at uh, machine-readable devices only. In other words, where you're talking about software, what does the jury have if, if humans aren't the ones who are supposed to experience the work? Part of the reason I ask is that it strikes me that there's a way in which juries are constantly being asked to provide some moral element, mm. right, about the wrong, about the unreasonableness, almost like if we just used a tort framework and called it as copying unreasonable. And sometimes that comes in the form of deciding similarity. And sometimes it's sort of a different question, but it still comes under substantial similarity. Yeah. Well, to, you know, to answer your question, what, this is what strikes me as so right on target about 
the way the Fourth Circuit, I think, has been the one that's been willing to particularize the ordinary observer to a particular kind of audience. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would say in that software case, look, you've just got to ask a bunch of software people, is this a, an effective substitute for that? Because it's about substitution. That, that's the cognizable harm. Doesn't that mean that the jury is not really necessary? I mean, if right. experts are the one, okay, got it. So 100% you're saying right. if it's substitution effects there, we're not actually asking experts to try to persuade the jury. We're just asking experts to weigh in. And it's not really about reading. It's all just about market. But I don't see how you... And maybe the jury's role... Wait, how do you do that, Joe? Maybe the jury's role is simply to evaluate the damages claim. How do I do what? So if it's about experts trying to, you know, testifying about the degree of substitution and you have experts on both sides, why is there not still a factual question? to be resolved. So we're running into two things. We're 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 running into we we've got is this a question of a fact or not? Mm-hmm. And then we've got it it it's at right angles to the question of how does how well does our system do with uh, dueling expert questions as opposed to questions of fact like was the light red or green in that place on that day at that time, right? And and I think the Unfortunately, this is copyright and, and lots of IP areas are areas where those two things really get intertwined and are very hard to tease apart. Uh, and I admit that, right? Um, and in our, so, so it depends on how, many, how much of the box you're willing to let me pick up and smash. Because if I, you know, you know Joe smash box, like I'll do, <laughs> I can smash lots of them. And, and if, if we take the Seventh Amendment factor out and I say, look, just do this from scratch. Right. Having dueling experts in front of a fact finder of not of lay people, mm-hmm. right, is it makes sense for some things and not at all for others. And and I don't think copyright cases ought to be in front of juries. Well, or back to back to your idea about damages. I mean, maybe maybe that's the appropriate place for them. Sure. You know, maybe. I'm curious how how you would operationalize this with so the the turbulence poem, the Adrian Rich poem, which I found really affecting. Um, it's a poem which describes and, you know, like some of the best poems do, you just, you feel it. You read the, after the first two lines, you realize you're on an airplane and it's, and it's, and it's kind of recapitulating experiences that you've had. And you're now you're, you know, it's really, as you say, the poem is really about you, right? Cause it speaks to you directly. There's all kinds of great stuff going on here. And it's, it's turbulence as a, as kind of a, a metaphor of, of how we experience life in general, right? That we are like the plane and there's, it, it's a terrific poem in short and it's in the back of your piece. So I just point people there. You know, if someone else writes a poem about airplane turbulence as a metaphor for the travails of life, what I imagine is that if someone brought a copyright claim against the putative copy of turbulence and the judge instructed according to substantial similarity with it, without um, the, the specific kind of expert dueling experts that, that Joe talked about, but just gave one of the versions of the instructions of substantial similarity that you criticize in the piece, that the jury would go in the back room and just the nature of, this would be my hypothesis, that just the nature of like a multi-person body deliberating about something consequential where they have to come to some kind of agreement would drive them toward kind of an efferent mode. Like maybe there'd be people saying that doesn't seem that similar to me, like an all things considered thing. But then the argument, like the way that they would try to persuade one another is to pick out like particular lines and maybe talk a little bit about meter or, you know, they might not be expert about it, but they would Mm. try to kind of coordinate specific things because that's a way of because like you just, you know, if I if a poem hits me differently than it hits you, we're kind of well, there's no more to say about that. Right. Unless we drill down and talk about the specific things that makes it hit me differently than it does you. Um, So how would you. 
so so that you could have experts come in and, and talk about like what particular elements make poems similar enough and maybe you connect that with the normative point well, i guess my normative thing before i go to descriptive my normative thing would be that i don't think there's probably that much copyright in an individual poem because it's a fairly short thing um but let's let's assume there's some copyright um on the level of a poem about turbulence that uses a conceit right an extended metaphor of airplane turbulence for emotional uh disruption you know, that's idea. So, uh, you know, as you point out, it would have to be expressed in particular ways. I think you're more confident that a jury would break things down into units than I am, absent a jury instruction, in, you know, instructing them to do so. And sometimes you do see jury instructions like that, but not that often. Um, and I would favor use of interrogatories or uh, advisory juries um, so that judges would have the capacity to ask jurors to provide their findings without having to persuade each other towards unanimity. I mean, I think it's a real weakness of the problem, uh, of the system rather, that you have to condense 12 views into one. Mm -hmm. And I think there are ways ways to get out of that, right? A special verdict is not going to help you if what you have to do is uh, achieve unanimity. It's a point that Laura makes nicely in her uh, piece, right? That it's the yeah. difference between reading and persuading. Um, but I think if you, for instance, quantified like of the 12 jurors, how many of them found this or that or something else, right? You, you basically would treat their um, aesthetic experiences of the work as a form of evidence that you could consider one way or another. And maybe there would be unanimity on certain things and maybe there wouldn't be, and that would be advisory for the judge to consider. Now, um, the effect of rendering that aspect of the jury verdict advisory on the right to a jury trial, I'm not sure, uh, you know, the impact of that. And I'm not sure whether the best thing to do would be to make some of it advisory or all of it advisory. But what I know is that um, jurors often don't do what we ask them to do. And there's lots of great literature on jury instructions and on jury verdicts. And uh, I think a lot of the time, jury verdicts reflect that something disproportionate or off the mark or actually erroneous happened. And in the piece that I'm writing right now uh, on jury instructions and their impact, which it's it's been sort of surprisingly overlooked in the copyright scholarship, it's pretty interesting to me that that's been overlooked. But um, I'm talking about a phenomenon that right now I'm calling juror resistance. It's not quite the same thing um, uh, as in the criminal uh, context with juror nullification. But sometimes you find that jurors are told to ignore things and then they don't or to focus on things and they don't. And we can see that in big social science projects where, like the Arizona project or the, the um, Chicago jury project, where juror deliberations have been recorded. And they'll be told, for instance, a lot of this stuff has been done in tort law. They'll be told to ignore juror fault for the purposes of something and to factor it in for another. And you'll actually hear jurors who have been told to ignore juror fault coming back to it. And I think. I just, my intuition is that that happens in copyright infringement cases and that where moral norms are at play and are not treated on the surface of the law, which is true in copyright, right? It's mens rea uh, requirement is zero, right? It's strict liability. um, And we don't care about plagiarism. We care about particular kinds of copying. So all sorts of reasons why I think the moral norms issue is relevant in copyright and has been written about a little bit, um, but not, not as fully as I would like to see. 
means that there's probably juror disobedience, basically, right? Not all the way to juror nullification necessarily, but, um, and so it's a very long answer to how I would try to manage the process of telling jurors to copy and, or not to copy, but to analyze in particular ways. And I think maybe the answer is cabining the amount of their autonomy and asking them to do particular things where we require that they show their work and can assess whether they've done it. It is a pickle to think about jury sort of compliance when we ourselves aren't sure we're asking them to <laughs> we're asking them to do the right things. I, I sort of feel for a juror in a case where you know you say to the juror, "Hey, by the way, for the last fifty years, all copyright scholars have been saying this entire domain is in crisis." <laughs> but 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 you should try harder to do a good job. Well, hey, buddy, well, I, I did try hard to do a good job. What you're asking me to do, you're not quite clear on yourself. That's like, right. It's a you know, I sort of feel for everyone involved, I suppose, but it's tough. And so it's a, it's a, it's doubly the problem that it normally is because I I saw in this piece two two what I would call like general well I guess general problems in law made specific in the copyright domain and it's it's fun to kind of think about like what's what what if these are general problems are they are they are we just seeing the general aspect of those problems played out in copyright which is interesting or, or are we seeing something different kind of refracted through copyright and what one of them is there's the problem of juries which may or may not be a good technology for figuring out facts and 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 in, in a lot of places don't seem to be a very good technology for that but maybe maybe better than anything else we have i mean that's the whole problem right it's like you know better than any other, you know worse than every other system that you can't imagine did i say that right <laughs> like you can't imagine each system which would be better uh and and the other one is is this like i i think your the response theory informs my thinking about every other act of interpretation in law right mm-hmm. that that you know when 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 skilled judges are interpreting statutes or constitutions, are they really doing different things than switching between these two modes of responsiveness? Are they themselves participating in meaning making and uh, through kind of you know, even just reading constitutional texts? Right, there is an aesthetic overall, all things considered, reaction to it, and then there is the parsing by commas and 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 words and and um, and capitalization. You can imagine all kinds of other specific things, but. But you wonder, like, which of those is predominant? And we have to acknowledge that people have those modes of, of response. And maybe that changes our understanding of what's going on with interpretation. So I found that I found it valuable to kind of look at interpretation more generally through that lens. And then in particular in, in copyright, where so much turns on, you know, the, the unit of protectability and then an interpretation of those of those units, it's it, it is a special problem. But um, but I thought that they were, again, like two general problems in law looked at in in copyright in particular. You're nodding, Joe. Did I get that? Yeah, you, well, the second idea, especially the way that the way that if you, I mean, the, the Rosenblatt's work breaking down reading into efferent and aesthetic and, and really thinking through the differences between those two and the way that those different tasks or those different frames could lead to different outcomes depending on, on what, your, what, what the overall project is. I, that is very interesting. Uh, and I learned a lot from that. But there's a there's a even a more basic sense in this interpreter reader uh, yes. response concept. Like one, so two things that sort of zoomed through my mind like little comets uh, <laughs> in the sky as I was reading this are was like one was this is why textualism in a way is such hokum because it's an effort to deny the reader's role in reading. Like at some basic level, 
the story yeah. of textualism is that, that all readers, which is to say any reader, which is to say no reader, right. is needed to understand this stuff. Right. And that, that just isn't part of human experience. They're needed to understand. Because, I mean, that's Scalia's whole point, right, with, with textualism as the tool to realize a kind of originalism. And, and to exactly eliminate was, discretion and eliminate was judicial... Totally, right, to destroy, to destroy right, the right. reader's and, agency. And, and it, so right? reader, I mean, Czar's Zah, exactly. proved to me that reader response theory is a great way to try to begin to take apart the total BS underlying a lot of <laughs> well, that stuff, right? Yeah, I, I don't know if I go that Not far. Not all but, of it, but a lot of it is, is sort of foundationally... The, the emperor has no clothes. You're asking people to to engage in a kind of interpretation we don't engage in with respect to any other kinds of communications, well, right? Yeah, and, we're asking for readerlessness, uh, readerless reading. It's a normative theory rather than a descriptive one. And to me, you know, reader response theory is more powerful because it's more accurate in its description. I mean, there are normative elements to it, but textualism takes a normative stance towards the text because I think uh, of the most generously construed of the worry that these are not just legal documents we're talking about, but they're uh, political ones. And so to the extent that you extract readers, I'm not defending it. I'm just trying to sort of rationalize it, you know, the, again, the most generous way one can to say, like, if you abstract uh, the reader out, you're also, at least in theory, abstracting politics out. Now, that doesn't actually hold up. But I think that's the idea is, you know, the text is you know, contains what it needs, contains the cues that it needs, and embedded in it are, you know, the the signs of its purpose and its intentions and all the rest. Yeah. I, I agree that ultimately it's it's probably hokum. And, and in the sort of another thing I thought, another comment going through the sky for me, and, and it's another, in a way it's a restatement, but Rosenblatt and, and focusing on actual reading and that sort of more phenomenological take on reader response She's she's basically the coast of of copyright, uh, the coast of 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 reading, because she, it, the problem of social costs, the 1960 paper where Coase says, look, the spark, the, the grass is as important as the spark to the fire. Right. Both sides of the tort are the causes of the tort. And so both sides of the, the text and the reader are the thing that are together the reading. Right. Like both matter. Right. You can't right. talk about this meaningfully if you don't talk about both. Got to talk right. about the whole problem. Right. right. Or the whole issue. And she's doing that and you're doing that. And I think that's cool. Thanks. Yeah. It's a it's a pragmatic take. I think I made Christian's brain fall out. No, no I mean, I, there's just so much we could, I could talk for another couple hours about because I think, you know, there, you, you can have a theory of of. Uh, of an author's work being done when the work is when when the work is shipped out right and the question is what is the meaning of that whether is there a sen- are there senses of meaning that we can give to that which don't depend on on readers and 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 not in the and i think you know persuasively as we've discussed like not in the usual sense that we think about communications but maybe there is a technical legal sense in which you can think of that job is done and you're and 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 a kind of a, res- a moral responsibility to vest power in that authorial moment, or at least to channel another audience, right? And which is the whole original public meaning idea, right? Is that you try to imagine these other readers, right? So it gives voice to this idea that the readers matter, but it looks at these other readers for political, you know, for, for reasons of democratic legitimacy. But we're never going to get into all of this uh, uh, today. And I, <laughs> right. We're never going to finish or it at least, today. At least not we well. We definitely like, got I, into it. <laughs> like I've gotten into a bunch of stuff, but I, I don't think I've gotten into any of it well, but at least it's been a great, it's been great hearing both of you um, inject some kind of sense into this and, and explode my sense of 
of the possible here. Just read, going through this thought exercise, Czar, that you set up about reading these works and thinking about it was really illuminating and, 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 and to me, you know, helpful in thinking about why this is a hard problem, even if I'm not sure how to, how to solve it, you know, and, and you throw the jury into there. I think the paper could have been great even without talking about juries at all, right? Just saying, hey, here's this, here's this problem of, of thinking about what a work means. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. I mean, that may be because you're a jurisprudence kind of kind of person and you can kind of see the, the implications. Um, I, I'm, I'm not as sanguine about the likelihood that the two L's would uh, would make the same connections. Uh, <laughs> that's but, a, but, that's know, a different matter. Right. And it depends on the two L's, of course. But I, I was going to say, you know, Christian, back to your point a few minutes ago about um, modes of reading and, you know, uh, are judges always reading at this level or, you know, folks who are reading cons- the Constitution or, or statutes and so forth. And I guess I would just say that my frustration in this space in copyright has been the idea that there are um, lots of complex things that people read, you know, lawyers and judges read, and those are uh, contracts and wills and uh, various other sorts of deeds and documents and statutes. But you know, in copyright, the hard stuff is software and occasionally music where you might need experts. But otherwise, you know, literature, music. Anybody can read that stuff. We don't need experts. None of it's complex. We don't need a reading apparatus. And so in some ways, this like love letter to reading in this article has been just to try to put people in the position of readers to make them, speaking of kind of meta awareness or metacognition, make them aware of the fact that they're already reading and that, by the way, when they're reading, they're having to make choices uh, and that that's true for judges and juries uh, in copyright cases in ways that matter. Um, and that's just something that I, I'm glad that you had the experience in reading, uh, reading the paper and in doing the thought exercise that connected you to those more, you know, more acknowledged as complex reading processes. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just been something that, that I've been kind of waging war on is the idea that because we all took literature in high school, it's easy or it's familiar, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. software, that's the hard stuff, um, or constitution, that's the hard, you know. And it's, it's, you know, going back to Robert Cover, who reminded us that, or claimed that, like, all lawmaking is an act of world building, right? It's an act of creating a normative world, which is very much like authoring literature. And I'm thinking just even as like a, as a five, six-year-old kid, like seeing Star Wars in the theater. And, and so much of, of that is not just, you know, taking in the story and being able to retell exactly the same story in my head all the time. It's like, you know, w- watching... The, the joy of watching um, uh, them go into Mos Eisley, right, um, and into the cantina, right, is also knowing it, it's it's the set of entailments that the story puts in your head, right, that you can then trace out. So it's the, it's all of the stuff which is going on outside of Mos Eisley that you now can think of because you've seen that scene, right? It's like right, the, right. the stuff which is going on, uh, uh, the, the adventures that Han Solo was involved in before he walked into Mos Eisley, right? The, the, the very idea of creating a character is to fill your mind with all of these possible entailments, right? And and so to you know, law, right? It, it's it, it it formally creates a certain number of entailments, but also helps to build our imagination about how to solve future entailments. And depending on when you encounter law or when you encounter Star Wars, uh, th- those may be different, right? So someone who sees Star Wars in the year twenty one hundred is going to have a very different set of like intuitions about maybe what's going on outside of Mos Eisley than I did as a five year old in nineteen seventy seven. And, and hopefully, 
copyright will be gone by then. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, there are, you know, that's a good, well, this is another show too, right? The it, system it, might be gone, but individual copyrights will surely still exist. Here are two uh, things, here are two, <laughs> things that, two things that Joe and I definitely agree on, right? That one, you can't imagine a world without trademark that works very well. Two, you can imagine a world without patent. We disagree on whether on exactly how desirable it would be. I think highly desirable. Joe is less certain about that. Not there yet. But on copyright, that's one which is, I've always thought you need some amount of copyright to because authors need some kind of control either for financial reasons or 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 for just kind of to give them to to protect the reasons that one would have to create a work, even if those aren't purely financial, but that the period is way too long. So something much, much shorter, and then you have to figure out how much you want the public domain to compete with new works and all of that. But but that's something that we've never really, um, on this show, I don't think we've ever really talked about about that. Precise, we've talked about copyright a lot, but but we've never come to such a sharp like disagreement or agreement on copyright, I think. Well, it is interesting thinking about the user then, right? And the, the audience. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of a moment in your um, really interesting uh, interview with Joe Fishman when he talked about how music was just the most intimate thing and because it's all happening in your head. But really, when you were just talking, Christian, about uh, Star Wars characters and how they they happen in our heads. And actually, one of the ways that uh, neuroscientists talk about characters as uh, a great quote was like, um, characters are like uh, software that run on our brains, yeah. right? like actually like plug in in a very intimate way. Like we mourn. I'm actually sort of in mourning about a TV show that is ending. That's been a seven year show. And, it, you know, you, you have actual sort of emotional and intimate experiences with characters and thinking about the way the audience is, is imagined and anticipated by authors is something that the copyright system, you know, doesn't always do as well as it could. And, and, and it should, I, I, the last little anecdote here, I was at this amazing movie uh, last Thursday for the opening of the Seattle international film festival uh, with Kumail Nanjiani, who's uh, Dinesh from Silicon Valley. I don't know if you guys watch that show. Oh, sure. Uh, but he's, he's a very, very funny guy. And uh, this wonderful movie about his real life wife and their uh, their romance. And it's funny and it's romantic. Afterwards, he and the director uh, and his wife were talking uh, with, you know, doing sort of Q&A with the audience and talking about the, the movie. And the, the biggest laugh line, which I will not spoil because you've got to go see this movie, but called The Big Sick. But the biggest laugh line, somebody asked them about what he said afterwards because nobody could hear it because everybody was laughing mm. for like three minutes straight. And he said, it was really, really funny. When we shot that, the laughter was so long that we realized we had to have me just improv talk for a little bit because the audience would have a response that big at, no matter when it played. And we had to do that because the next scene was serious and you would lose the, you know, you would basically be laughing over into the serious moment. And so we reshot it, added some filler mm. for the audience to just laugh through. It meant nothing. It was not artistically, you know, there for any reason other than anticipating the audience joy in the moment before and creating space for the next, you know, like the, the, the beat to shift into serious. So the audience is always there whether we're sort of talking about it or not. And copyright ought to reflect that more. Boom. That's got to be, that's got to be it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Zara, thank you so, so much yeah, for this is taking great. the time to talk to Beautiful. us and for writing this paper. Yeah, it Super was great. fun to speak with you. I appreciate the honor of being on your show. Oh, that's the first time it's ever been described as an honor, I think. Indeed. <laughs> and, it, and it may be the first time it was an honor. <laughs> this is terrific. Okay. All right. Thanks to you both.